down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more than one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Tonight, we're going to discuss a very important topic, and this topic is called DURC, and that stands for Dual Use Research of Concern. Many of you may not be familiar with this idea of what is dual use research, so we're going to go through this here tonight. And the reason I'm bringing this up and that we're actually uh, taking a look at this is because a friend of mine on Facebook brought this module, this training module, to my attention. It's called Biosecurity for Vaccine Producers Module 1, Dual Use Equipment of Concern. But before we go into that document here, I think we need to go back and define a little bit about what is dual use research, and specifically dual use research of concern. So in order to better define that, we're going to look at a paper here from a place called Newfield Council on Bioethics. And this is a background paper by a Dr. Philippa Lensos, the senior research fellow in the Department of Social Science, Health and Medicine, King's College, London. And this paper was written in November of 2015. And it says here in a little note below this, says the author was commissioned by the Newfield Council on Bioethics to write this paper in order to inform the council's discussions about possible future work on this topic. The paper is intended to provide an overview of key clinical, ethical, social, legal, and policy issues, but is not intended to offer any conclusions or recommendations regarding future policy and practice. Any views expressed in the paper are the author's own and not those of the Newfield Council on Bioethics. So let's get right into this because this paper describes uh, pretty much what it is that this dual use concept is and what it encompasses. And we'll uh, go a little bit into this paper because it says some very important things that relate directly to the other paper, the primary one that we're going to look at. And that's actually not a paper. It's more of a slideshow presentation, but it's, it's a training seminar for people within the industry. So let's just lay the groundwork for what it is we're talking about here. Dual use in biology and biomedicine. The dual use concept in the field of arms control and disarmament, dual use refers to technologies intended for civilian application that can also be used for military purposes. The International Treaty Banning Biological Weapons, the Biological Weapons Convention, prohibits the development, production, and stockpiling of biological weapons, but does not prevent states conducting research activities for peaceful and defensive purposes. However, distinguishing between permitted and prohibited activities is difficult at the level of basic biological research, where the same techniques used to gain insight and understanding about fundamental life processes for the benefit of human health and welfare may also be used for the development of biological warfare agents. 
There are four frequently cited trends in biology that are complicating this so-called dual-use dilemma. And those are, number one, the increasing pace of change in the life science and related fields. Number two, the increasing convergence of biology and biomedicine with mathematics, engineering, chemistry, computer science, and information theory. Number three, the increasing diffusion of capacity in biology and biomedicine around the world, particularly in emerging economies such as China and India, and increasing collaborations not only among researchers in scientifically developed countries and between researchers in developed and developing countries, but among regional networks and increasingly among scientists within developing countries. Number four. The increasing opening up of science with new tools like wikis, blogs, and microblogs, altering how information is gathered, handled, disseminated, and accessed, and amateur communities, scientific outreach, and educational toys, increasing access to hardware for wet work in the life sciences. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. If you're not familiar with the term wet work, that means testing it out in live subjects. That's what wet work means. Let's move on to the next part. Next section says dual use of concern, abbreviated D-U-R-C. The seminal report focusing on the dual use dilemma in the U.S. National Academies of Sciences report, Biotechnology Research in an Age of Terrorism, chaired by MIT biologist Gerald Fink, the committee behind the report was set up in response to the growing concern about bioterrorism and the potential for misuse of biotechnology by hostile individuals and states following 9-11 and the Amerithrax attacks, as the FBI codenamed the anthrax letters sent to media outlets in the U.S. Senate immediately following 9-11. The Fink Committee, and I'm going to pause there, gotta love the name, the Fink Committee. Could it be uh, any better of a name? Anyway, let's continue on. The Fink Committee, as it became known, also responded to a set of published scientific experiments in the early 2000s that involved the creation of genetically engineered mousepox and smallpox variants and the artificial synthesis of poliovirus. These experiments raised policy and public concerns that the scientific papers could be downloaded online by terrorists and used to launch a bioweapon attack. Biotechnology research in an age of terrorism formed a significant part of the political discourse around dual use in the early 2000s that conflated concerns over cutting-edge scientific experiments with the Amerithrax case and other types of potential bioterrorist events, with little differentiation of the types of factors that might shape each of these distinct threats. We're going to get to the important part here now of this paper. You'll see why as we progress further here. The committee identified seven classes of experiments that would raise misuse concerns and that should necessitate further review before they are conducted or published. These include those that, number one, demonstrate how to render a vaccine ineffective. Number two, confer resistance to therapeutically useful antibiotics or antiviral agents. Number three, enhance the virulence of a pathogen or render a non-pathogen virulent. Number four, increase the transmissibility of a pathogen. Number five, alter the host range of a pathogen. Number six, enable evasion of diagnostic or detection modalities. 
And number seven, enable the weaponization of a biological agent or toxin. The Fink Report also recommended the creation of a new National Science Advisory Board for biosecurity to provide guidance for the review and oversight of such experiments and other dual-use research concerns. The National Science Advisory Board on Biosecurity was chartered in 2004 by the Executive Office of the President to provide advice to the U.S. government regarding the review and oversight of dual-use research. In the first years of its existence, the NSABB was focused on defining and providing oversight recommendations for dual-use research, as well as making recommendations regarding the emerging field of synthetic genomics. And I'm going to pause there. Remember those words, synthetic genomics. That'll be important at some point in the near future. You'll be hearing terms like this more frequently. At the time, and into the present, the NSABB has been primarily concerned with providing guidance on scientific and technological developments in the life sciences and how these might lead to biological weapons or bioterrorism threats. In their oversight and evaluation recommendations, the focus of the NSABB has been almost exclusively on the materials and methods sections in scientific papers and also the availability and use of new technologies to produce advanced bioweapons threats. The NSABB proposed a split between two kinds of science. Dual-use research was used to refer in general to legitimate life sciences research with potential to yield information that could be misused to threaten public health and safety and other aspects of national security. Since nearly all science could be used in this manner, NSABB offered another category, Dual use of research concern, or no, also known as DURC. I'm going to pause there again. This is the important part here, folks. This denoted research that, based on current understanding, can be reasonably anticipated to provide knowledge, products, or technologies that could be directly misapplied by others to pose a threat to public health and safety. Informed by the Fink Committee's seven classes of experiments, the NSABB identified seven categories of experiments that describe information, products, or technologies that, if produced from life sciences research, mean the research warrants careful consideration for its dual-use potential. And I'm going to pause there. You'll notice that they keep using these seven categories. That number seven, two sevens so far have turned up in this, this paper back-to-back. -back. At first, they identified seven classes of experiments that would render misuse concerns, and now the Fink Committee has actually classified seven categories of technologies and knowledge that could enable these different consequences here. The Fink Committee categories were descriptors of information, products, or technologies that, if produced from life sciences research, might define that research as meeting the criterion for being dual-use research of concern. So let's see, what are these categories that they list as being dual-use research of concern? The NSABB categories are knowledge, products, or technologies that could enable any of the following. Number one enhance the harmful consequences of a biological agent or toxin. Number two, and this one's important, pay attention here folks. Number two, disrupt immunity or the effectiveness of immunization without clinical and or agricultural justification. Number three, confer to a biological agent or toxin 
resistance to clinically and or agriculturally useful prophylactic or therapeutic interventions against that agent or toxin or facilitate their ability to evade detection methodologies. Number four, increase the stability, transmissibility, or the ability to disseminate a biological agent or toxin. Number five, alter the host range or tropism of a biological agent or toxin. Number six, enhance the susceptibility of a host population. And number seven, generate a novel pathogenic agent or toxin or reconstitute an eradicated or extinct biological agent. And we're going to pause right there, folks. Doesn't all this stuff sound like gain-of-function research? Hmm, I wonder. Let's continue on, because there's a couple more important points to reach in this paper before we look at the primary paper of concern. This one's just laying the groundwork for us, folks. Experiments with high misuse potential. Examples of DURC in biology and biomedicine include those that increase capacity, number one, to manipulate the pathogenicity, virulence, host specificity, transmissibility, resistance to drugs, or ability to overcome host immunity to pathogens. Number two, to synthesize pathogens and toxins without cultivation of microorganisms or using other natural sources. Number three, to identify new mechanisms to disrupt the healthy functioning of humans, animals, and plants. And number four, to develop novel means of delivering biological agents and toxins. Gonna pause there. That is exactly gain-of-function research, folks. In a nutshell. Isn't it? What have we been hearing about now? Gain-of-function research. That's one of the main things that's been thrown around over this alleged COVID-19. Gee, I wonder. Hmm. So anyway, let's let's get back to what they're saying here. Let's let's read a little further on because there's more important points here. More concretely, there have been a number of high-profile experiments over the past few years that have raised significant concern. These have aimed to make mousepox more deadly, synthesize polio virus from scratch, reconstruct the extinct 1918 flu virus, and make flu viruses more easily able to spread. They are detailed further below. Our research projects that have also raised concerns about their high misuse potential include the development of computer simulations that model the spread of disease, which could also help optimize the impact of a deliberate release, the creation of a chimera virus from the components of an influenza virus and the West Nile virus, and the identification and characterization of antibiotic resistance to new antibiotics previously held in reserve for the treatment of multidrug resistant strains. More virulent mousepox. In an attempt to create a contraceptive vaccine for mice as a means of pest control, Australian scientists unexpectedly increased the virulence of mousepox. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Are you paying close attention here? A contraceptive vaccine. This is a vaccine to control fertility, basically. This is what uh, they were developing, and it caused a more virulent strain of mousepox within these mice. And uh, we could go back and look at actual research papers and policy think tank white papers talking about fertility regulating vaccines. This the World Bank had their hands all over. I have a document about this fertility regulating vaccine that goes back to 1993. This stuff's been in the planning 
for a long, long time. So anyway, let's not get too hung up on that idea. We've got a lot more ground to cover here tonight. They inserted interleukin-4, a gene that enhances antibody production, into mousepox, and the new virus proved to be highly lethal in infected mice, including those that had been vaccinated against it. After discussion, it was decided to pursue publication of the findings. When the paper was published in the Journal of Virology in January 2001, widespread media coverage focused on the potentially dangerous consequences the results could have for public health. Going to pause there for just a moment, folks. They, they seem overly concerned with public health, don't they, all of a sudden? <laughs> anyway, all of these different things. These, this is just an example of some of the things that they've developed in a lab. That, that had the potential to be weaponized. And they were doing it under the auspices of defense or just uh, research, bioethical research. See, that that's how they cover a lot of this. They have these international laws and stuff in place that ban this kind of stuff. But when it's like state-run operations that are, are, are funding and researching this stuff and they, they claim it under the umbrella of national defense or something like that, that's how they get away with allowing something like this to continue and persist. Questions were raised about genetic manipulation in general, and there were concerns that similar experiments on orthopox viruses, such as smallpox, could potentially increase their virulence. Some warned that the paper provided information that could be used to render the smallpox vaccines ineffective. Synthetic polio virus. Here we go. Here's another one. In 2002, researchers demonstrated that it was possible to assemble a synthetic virus by piecing together chemically synthesized oligonucleotides ordered online from commercial DNA synthesizing companies based on openly published polio genomes. The result was a live poliovirus that paralyzed mice. The published paper included a description of methods and materials. The primary concern with this research was that it could yield a recipe for reconstructing poliovirus without obtaining a natural virus. Gonna pause there. Synthetic viruses, folks. Manufactured viruses. Virus-like nanoparticles. All these things exist there were also concerns that the research could enable the artificial synthesis of smallpox, as the smallpox genome had also been published online. Though experts pointed out that, due to the much greater complexity of the smallpox virus, it was unlikely that the same approach would be successful in producing a working virus. Critics of the research were also skeptical about the scientific value of the research and the need for its publication, arguing that the techniques used in the experiment were not new and the research did not lead to new knowledge or insights. And I'm going to pause right there. So that should give you a little bit of insight into what's going on here. Okay, they had no reason to do this. It didn't give them any new insights. They didn't use any new kinds of uh, technology or or insights into these things they did it for the sake of being able to do it so that they could create a potential weapon this stuff goes on under the auspices of these different programs which are heavily funded by darpa and other organizations within government and para-government type places this is some of the things that they do and they willingly admit right here that it didn't lead to any new knowledge or insights so the research basically it wasn't truly research. It was just, let's, let's make a weapon because we can. Reconstructed 1918 Influenza Virus. In 2005, 
researchers successfully recreated the extinct influenza A H1N1 virus responsible for the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic using gene sequences from archived materials and from lung tissue of an influenza victim who had been buried in permafrost in 1918. Using reverse genetics, the researchers generated the relevant 1918 viral coding sequences and outfitted a relatively avirulent influenza virus with all eight viral segments of the 1918 strain that conferred the unique high virulence 1918 strain phenotype on the engineered virus. The aim of the research was to increase understanding of the biological properties responsible for the high virulence of the pandemic virus. This knowledge could then be used to devise and evaluate current and future public health interventions should a similar pandemic virus emerge, including strategies to diagnose, treat, and prevent the disease. The experiment also indicated that the 1918 virus gene sequences were more closely related to avian H1N1 viruses than any other mammalian influenza H1N1 strains. The experiment was published in October 2005 in Nature, where the sequences of the final three gene segments of the flu virus genome were published, and in Science, which published the recreation of the flu virus based on the Nature article. While some considered the research to represent a landmark breakthrough, others raised concerns about the risks posed by resurrecting the virus, questioned the safety procedures for handling the virus, and even questioned the scientific value of the experiment, arguing that the research had limited utility. Others questioned whether the research findings should have been published. The NSABB concluded that the scientific benefits of the research far outweighed the biosecurity risks. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. They don't mind playing games with the lives of the public. Okay? Make no mistake about it, they're not concerned about the health of the public at large. They're more interested in trying to figure out how to weaponize these things. It's the military-industrial complex behind most of this research. They're the ones that fund it and find ways to weaponize it. Thus, the term dual use, it's military use for things with commercial intent. They do this in all different fields, all different lines of science. They're notorious for this. This is what DARPA is all about, finding dual use. Let's continue on, and we're almost done with this part, and we'll move on to the, the next paper. More transmissible influenza viruses, an area of virology which creates pathogens that could potentially cause pa pandemics, first attracted attention in 2011. Two leading influenza laboratories led by Ron Foichet at the Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands and Yoshihiro Kawoka at the University of Wisconsin-Madison revealed that they had made versions of the H5N1 avian influenza strain that could now spread between mammals. It could previously only spread between birds. Many scientists worried that if the potent new lab strain was accidentally or deliberately released, it could result in a deadly pandemic. Going to pause right there, folks. There's your gain-of-function research right there. It's exactly what it is. The New York Times read an, ran an editorial with the unambiguous headline, An Engineered Doomsday. 
arguing that the modified flu virus could kill tens or hundreds of millions of people if it escaped the lab or was stolen by terrorists. Proponents of gain-of-function research, on the other hand, argued that such studies help us understand influenza transmission and aid public health researchers detect an impending flu pandemic and prepare vaccines. What else do I have to say here, folks? Gain-of-function research is a dual-use research of concern, and yet they outright dismiss this in the mainstream circles of things. But make no mistake about it, the intelligence community takes it very seriously. In January 2012, a group of leading influenza virologists agreed to a voluntary moratorium on these so-called gain-of-function studies. The work resumed in 2013, but new experiments on human-made H5N1 and other dangerous flu strains like H1N1, H7N9, and H7N1 rekindled concerns, in part because a series of lab accidents and breaches at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institutes of Health had heightened concerns about safety at high-containment labs. In October 2014, the U.S. government stepped in, imposing a federal funding pause on the most dangerous gain-of-function experiments and announcing an extended, deliberative process that is still ongoing. Emerging fields with high misuse potential, emerging fields of research within biology and biomedicine that have raised particular concern include synthetic biology and neurobiology. Going to pause there for, for a second here, folks. So you see, gain-of-function research. They had put a, a temporary moratorium on it, but uh, make no mistake about it, they're still doing it. They've never stopped. See, they're just not talking about it publicly now like they were before. It's still going on, and they, they'll cite things like, oh, national security and that kind of thing. And they'll keep this stuff compartmentalized in these special access programs within the auspices of the military-industrial complex. And they won't tell you what's really going on with this stuff, will they? Anyway, well, let's take a look. We were going to talk about synthetic biology, and this is a very important field of research that you'll be hearing a lot more about in the very near future. Synthetic biology is an emerging field that seeks to create a rational framework for manipulating the DNA of living organisms through the application of engineering principles. Although the precise labeling of synthetic biology and whether it represents a distinctly novel field have been called into question, its key founding principle is to engineer biology or to design and engineer biologically based parts, novel devices and systems, as well as redesigning existing natural biological systems. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. This is talking about cybernetics. Cybernetics and transhumanism all together in one here that's this emerging field of synthetic biology this is what the plan is it's all part of the transhumanist push it's it's all the same it's all based upon cybernetics principles all of it transhumanism in the making here that's what they're talking about redesigning existing natural biological systems T turning them into something completely unnatural that that's what they're talking about Anyway, let's continue on with the reading, and then we're going to drop it right after uh, we finish talking about the synthetic biology here and move over to the, the other paper, which was my primary focus here going in. But there's so much important stuff in this other research paper, I figured we better cover it. 
Synthetic biology research. The pace of progress in the field has been exceptionally fast. From the first functional virus with 7,500 DNA base pairs synthesized from scratch in 2002, which was a polio virus, it says CK study details above, to 32,000 DNA base pairs synthesized in 2004, to the synthesis of an entire bacterium with over a million DNA base pairs, mycoplasma mycoids, in 2010, a major milestone in the use of DNA synthesis techniques to create more complex and functional products. And pay attention to that word, products, folks. In 2014, a designer yeast chromosome was constructed. This time, a major advance towards building a completely synthetic eukaryotic genome. Synthetic biology research has also focused on the creation of a bacterium with the minimal number of genes necessary for the organism to survive. Foundational work on mycoplasma genitalium reduced the bacterium to the minimum 381 genes necessary for keeping it alive, with the aim of using the microbe as a chassis for building new synthetic biological devices able to perform specific tasks. I'm going to pause right there, folks. You ever hear of nanobots? Hmm? You think it's science fiction? This is what it is. It, it's not fiction. They have these things. Let's continue on. Advances in synthesis and minimal genome research have been complemented by progress in gene editing technology, which is enabling deletions and additions in human DNA sequences with greater efficiency, precision, and control than ever before. CRISPR, clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, has become the major technology employed for these purposes and has been used to manipulate the genes of organisms as diverse as yeast, plants, mice, and reported in April 2015, human embryos. The system relies on an enzyme, Cas9, capable of making cuts at any point in a DNA molecule that uses a guide RNA molecule to home in on its target DNA, then edits the DNA to disrupt genes or insert desired sequences. Most of the components can be bought off the shelf. Often, it is only the RNA fragment that needs to be ordered with a total cost of as little as $30. Characterized as cheap, quick, and easy to use, it has been labeled the biggest game changer to hit biology since PCR, the gene amplification method that revolutionized genetic engineering after its invention in 1985. Genetic changes in one organism usually take a long time to spread through a population. This is because a mutation carried on one of a pair of chromosomes is inherited by only half the offspring. But... Gene drives are now allowing a mutation made by CRISPR on one chromosome to copy itself to its partner in every generation, so that nearly all offspring will inherit the change. This means an edited gene can, in principle, spread through a population exponentially faster than normal. The dual-use discourse around synthetic biology has been focused on the field's potential to create dangerous pathogens from scratch and design radically new pathogens not found in nature. The emphasis has primarily been on terrorists and non-state actors, while little emphasis on states and military and defense actors. 
And I don't think I need to read any further than that, do I, folks? So you could see the emphasis has primarily been on terrorists and non-state actors, with little emphasis on states and military and defense actors. And that's where they get away with this stuff. They label it national defense or national security. And they could do this. And they have been doing this. They've been using these technologies, the military-industrial complex. They are far in advance of what we may think. And this is just an example of that. This paper that we just read from was written in 2015. And I could tell you the technologies they're talking about there are far older than that. And that brings us to our primary focus here, our concern. This is a slideshow presentation called Biosecurity for Vaccine Producers, Module 1, Dual Use Equipment of Concern. And this is put out by a program called IBCTR, International Biological and Chemical Threat Reduction. Now, this is a program headed up by Sandia National Laboratories. And it says here, Sandia National Laboratories is a multi-mission laboratory managed and operated by National Technology and Engineering Solutions of Sandia LLC, a wholly owned subsidiary of Honeywell International Incorporated. Ever hear that one, folks? Ever hear of Honeywell? <laughs> and it says, for the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration under contract DENA 0003525. This program, this International Biological and Chemical Threat Reduction Program, run through Sandia Laboratories, is putting out this slideshow presentation for people that work within the industry and within the military-industrial complex who do the research on many of these things. So it says here, we'll look down the slides here, Key messages. Many types of vaccine production equipment are considered dual-use equipment. The only difference between a vaccine and a bioterror agent is the final inactivation step. Gonna pause right there. <laughs> the final inactivation step. Well, here's the thing. If you're putting out a vaccine that's actually a gene therapy, is there an inactivation step? I don't think there is, is there, folks? It, it, once the genie's out of the bottle, you're not getting it back in. Vaccine producers have a responsibility to control assets that might have interest for adversaries. The dual-use equipment should be handled in a way that proliferation does not occur. During this lecture, we will ask you to consider some questions and then write down your answers before you advance to the next slide. In our training experience, this type of participation makes the training more relevant and useful to your situation. We encourage you to take the time to think about these questions and participate in the lecture. And then it goes on to just give a couple questions, and it talks about what they call bio-risk management, assessment, mitigation, and performance. And then uh, it gives you a reflection here. Product production equipment. It says on a piece of paper, list all the types of equipment that you can think of being used in your production facility for a for production of a vaccine, either upstream or downstream. And then it gives on the next slide here some typical answers that, that people in this field would probably give. A fermenter, a bioreactor, a centrifuge, freeze dryer, purification column, filter systems, etc. etc. And then it gives you more questions. And this, this is what the whole point of this is. To give somebody involved in this research or this field these ideas. Why are we producing vaccines? And then it says on a piece of paper, list all your reasons for 
the facility to exist. So why are we producing vaccines? Here's some typical answers. To save lives, to enhance quality of life for the population, to save money for the health system, and of course, earn money as a company. And I think that's probably the key point right there. Earn money as a company. That's your typical answers you would get from the people within the field. And then it goes down after these questions. It goes to an introduction. And it introduces the International Biological and Chemical Threat Reduction Program. And it says, have you ever thought about that the only difference between a vaccine and a biological weapon is the choice of agent and final inactivation step. And it has a lovely picture of some babies on the left and an old person dying on a gurney uh, surrounded by people in hazard ma hazmat suits on the right. Isn't that lovely? Biosecurity and vaccine productions. There is rising need for vaccine manufacturers to understand and implement biosecurity and biosafety measures at their facilities. The biological materials have a potential for infection. That is why we are producing the vaccine to protect the hosts against infectious diseases. The equipment utilized in the production can be used for other biological processes as well. And the specialized technical knowledge are all attractive targets for terrorist groups with a stated intent to conduct biological attacks. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Do you see how they're focusing again on non-state actors and terrorists? This is always how they try to frame this, this reference point with this stuff. Let's move down. Single-use equipment. Single-use equipment is becoming more and more standard in the production process of biological and pharmaceutical facilities because it's easy to operate, it's acceptable price, and easily available. So it says, awareness of the risk. The dual-use aspect of the production equipment paired with single-use equipment availability becomes an even more volatile mixture. Many manufacturers are unaware of the risks associated with dual-use equipment, large-scale production knowledge, and techniques. And I'm going to pause right there. And that should be a reason for concern, shouldn't it? Most of these manufacturers, they really have no clue about much of this stuff, how, how something nefarious could be going on under their noses at their, their facilities. Vaccine company drivers. Unfortunately, most vaccine producers are unaware of how big and attractive a target their employees and technology actually are for people that want to do harm. And that's an understatement, isn't it, folks? Especially if that might be somebody on the inside. Most vaccine producers have difficulty envisioning that anyone would want to do harm and most do not have any concerns regarding what happens with old discarded stainless steel production equipment or with unused single-use equipment. Consequences. Then it gives another reflection question here. What could be some of the consequences for the company if your facility was targeted by adversaries and the following were targeted? First of all, the seed agents or cell lines stored in, stored in cryo were stolen. Production equipment sitting in a warehouse was stolen. Production equipment in use were stolen. Bulk product from a stainless steel fermenter were tapped and stolen. Bulk product in a single-use system on wheels were rolled out of the production. Final product awaiting final release were tampered with. And it says write down your answers and continue to the next slide. So it's, it's giving you some ideas of things that may potentially happen with this stuff somewhere in the process. So it says here, agents, seed, cell lines. Typical answers. 
Seed agent's cell wine stored in cryo container were stolen. The whole basis and business model of the facility may be at risk. No master seed lots to make new batches of vaccines. Agents can be used by competitors for acquiring a similar market somewhere else. Agents can be used directly on a vulnerable human or animal community. And you'll notice there, folks, I'm going to pause there, that uh, the key concerns there, first and foremost, were about the company. Did, did you catch that? The last thing on the list was that agents can be used directly on a vulnerable human or animal community. The, the, the first two answers there that were given we're all about the company. Oh, the company could suffer some major losses that way. Or a competitor could get a hold of our product and duplicate it. <laughs> and the, the concern for the well-being of others, that was last on the list there. Next section here, production equipment. Typical answers. Production equipment sitting in a warehouse was stolen. Adversaries can acquire export-controlled equipment by this way. And the UNSCR 1540 BWTC has been circumvented. New batches might be delayed, impacting vaccination schedules for the customers. Production equipment in use was stolen. Batches lost. Impact on delivery time, vaccination schedule, revenue, company credibility. I'm gonna pause there. Do you see how this is just business centric, corporation centric? They don't care. They don't give a crap about the health of the population. Okay? And this points that out in spades. Their concerns are for the company's bottom line. That's all. And when it comes to this, this biosecurity stuff that we're talking about here, typical answers for the product question that they gave. Bulk product from a stainless steel fermenter were tapped and stolen. It says contamination compromise of the rest of the batch by non-aseptic sampling technique. Non-inactivated product could be used as seed material for other large-scale batches somewhere else. Bulk product in a single-use system on wheels was rolled out of the production. Final product for market would not be available, causing potential stop in vaccination campaigns, loss of revenue, and credibility. Non-inactivated product could be used as seed material for other large-scale batches. Then the other problem, final vaccine product awaiting final release was tampered with. Product will have to be discarded. Product cannot be released for sale as there might be spiked contaminants in the product that the pharmacopias do not anticipate. We do not know what to look for. So I'm going to pause right there again, folks. You see how it's all about the company's bottom line, okay? It has nothing to do with the health and well-being and security of the people, okay? The public, the population. They don't give a crap. They really don't. They're just talking about what would happen in this situation if this, this stuff happened. Well, our company would wind up losing money. That's essentially what they're saying in every single answer there, except for that one answer. Let's move down to the next section here, vaccine company drivers. Conclusion. Should a vaccine producer be targeted by people with malicious intent, the final consequences can be dire and severe. Number one, the producer will be the source associated with the outbreak or the attack. Number two, it can have dire business consequences for the future of the facility. Number three, outbreaks and pandemics can be envisioned as a plausible outcome, and history has shown that this type of bioterrorism has happened in the past. So there, it's, it, there's their conclusion. The company will be hurt. <laughs> Do you see how much they give a crap about you and me, folks? The company's bottom line will suffer, and their reputation will suffer. 
All right, well, let's, let's move down. Vaccine company drivers. The individual vaccine companies do not have any obvious upfront drivers for adding on assumingly tedious bio-risk management procedures and policies that are not mandatory by law, as these do not clearly give any immediate revenue and benefits for the facility. Going to pause right there. You hear that? Vaccine companies, they, they don't have any reason why they should put bio-risk management uh, procedures and policies in place because they're not mandatory by law. And it doesn't produce them any revenue or benefit. So, uh, do you still feel safe taking these products, folks? Uh, like, I, I don't know what else to tell people. Let's read down here. Certifying vaccine authorities do not see it as their mandate to enforce biosafety and security procedures, as these entities primarily focus on protecting the product and the end user, and not to the same degree protecting the employees, the environment, and the community. Do you see that? So the, the authorities that certify these vaccine manufacturers, they don't enforce any biosafety and security procedures either. There's nothing in place. It's ridiculous. Do you still feel safe taking this product? I, I don't honestly know what to tell people with this stuff anymore. Staff safety and environment. Normally there will be vaccines available for the staff for any of the infectious agents used in the specific facility. Therefore, the most urgent BRM driver, and that would be bio-risk management, that's what BRM stands for. Therefore, the most urgent BRM driver, keeping the employees healthy and protected from acquiring a laboratory infection, is not of immediate concern for the management, because exposure will not necessarily result in disease. Are, are you paying attention? Because they provide vaccines for, for their employees, for anything they may be handling, they're not concerned if they get exposed to any of these uh, biological agents, folks. Did you hear that? Right, let's continue on. Here's the next sentence. That leaves the National Environmental Regulation as the only driver to introduce a comprehensive biosafety engagement strategy for preventing release. Unless vaccine companies respond to the threat and take their own actions to secure their material with dual-use potential. There's no oversight for this stuff. Then the next section here talks about the Biological Weapons Convention. The Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention is an international treaty that went into effect in 1975. It bans the use of biological weapons and prohibits all development, production, acquisition, stockpiling, or transfer of such weapons. It was the first multilateral disarmament treaty banning an entire category of weapons as states' parties to the BWC undertook never in any circumstances to develop, produce, stockpile, or otherwise acquire or retain, number one, microbial, other biological agents or toxins, whatever their origin or method of production of types and in quantities that have no justification for, for prophylactic, pr protective, or other peaceful purposes. You hear that? Peaceful purposes. And number two, weapons, equipment, and means of delivery designed to use such agents or toxins for hostile purposes or in an armed conflict. Going to pause there. Do you see how they leave the door wide open for state actors to actually, maybe for the purposes of, say, peaceful research, testing it upon their own populations instead of other countries or or using it as a, a, a necessarily like a, a weapon in an active aggressive war they leave the door wide open for that with this language 
The convention effectively prohibits the development, production, acquisition, transfer, retention, stockpiling, and use of biological and toxic weapons. All members of the UN, close to 200 sovereign states, have unanimously adopted the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1540 of April 2004. The resolution requires the UN member states to take legislative and other national measures to prohibit and prevent the proliferation of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons to non-state actors, particularly terrorists, and to report on implementation to the United Nations 1540 Committee. It focuses on acquiring, manufacturing, possessing, transporting, transferring, or using nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons. And it says, furthermore, there are implementation documents such as Council Regulation Number 428-2009 of May 2009 that focuses on how to set up a community regime for the control of exports, transfer, brokering, and transit of dual-use items. It is a comprehensive document that lists both agents and related materials. Related materials can be equipment as fermenters, centrifuges, spray systems, filter systems, lyophilizers, and knowledge information. So there's that council regulation. Implementation of biosecurity measures. A few countries have implemented an actual biosecurity law as a direct re result of the UNSCR 1540. They have issued both legislation and administrative procedures for handling agents of concern. As time goes by, more and more countries are revising their legislation with regard to dangerous agents. Very few countries have a biosecurity law that covers both agents and related materials. Here's the important part, folks. Pay attention. For the vaccine industry, it is especially the related materials, equipment, and knowledge that are of biggest concern as they relate to the very specialized skill set required to propagate small volumes of material into very large volumes. As long as a real biosecurity law is not implemented and enforced in a country, it is difficult to envision that the vaccine producers will, on their own, change their priorities and behaviors overnight. However, in the absence of legal constraints, ethical conduct is still important as a societal benefit. <laughs> really? You're kidding. So, you you know, it's important for them to be ethical? What? <laughs> I'll tell you what. Like, Unbelievable. But you could see here, the vaccine industry stands out directly as a dual-use research of concern. It's a D-U-R-C. Dual-use research of concern. So, let's, let's move on down here. It says, take the list of vaccine production equipment you created earlier in this course and compare it to the official list of dual-use equipment in the document. And we listed some of those things. And we scroll down to the bottom past that. The key messages here. It says, number one, many types of vaccine production equipment are considered dual-use equipment. Number two, the only difference between a vaccine and a bioterror agent is the final inactivation step. Remember that one, folks. The only difference between a vaccine and a bioterror agent is the final inactivation step. And when you're offering people a vaccine that doesn't actually have a viable inactivation step, that's a bioterror agent, isn't it? Hmm? Think about that. 
because you're talking about these gene therapies, okay? With a gene therapy, there's no inactivation step involved. So by definition here, by definition, it doesn't even qualify as a vaccine, first of all. But if you were to try to push it as a vaccine, which they have been, the only difference between a vaccine and a bioterror agent is the final inactivation step. Would this not by proxy make these things a bioterror agent? Food for thought. Next point here, it says, Vaccine producers have a responsibility to control assets that might have interest for adversaries. The dual-use equipment should be handled in a way that proliferation does not occur. Let's get to the conclusions of this PowerPoint presentation here. It says, Conclusion. Vaccine producers already protect information about their bath sizes and yields, number of lost batches per year, batch documentation and production knowledge, final released product for sale, seed lots and seed strains. So, okay, let's let's take all that information in for a second, folks. Vaccine producers, they already protect this information, okay? So that means you can't get a straight answer from them about any of this stuff. Bath sizes or yields, the number of lost batches per year, batch documentation or production knowledge. That would include things like ingredients or production values or, or methodologies that they use. Final released product for sale. They, they protect information about that as proprietary. They won't tell you what's in it or how it affects you, per se. Seed lots and seed strains. So they won't tell you. Uh, once again, this is, this is obfuscating what, what goes into these things. And you can't know. They won't let you know. So doesn't this violate informed consent? I would say it does, because they won't tell you what's in it or how it's made. They don't tell you that. They'll give you a rundown of some of the basic ingredients that they know are in it, but they won't give you any anything specific. Like, there's also ingredients in it that they would consider proprietary that they're not obliged to tell you about because of that. And that kind of violates the whole idea of informed consent, doesn't it? Let's read down at the statement down at the bottom here. It would only take a little extra effort to protect the access to intermediate, non-inactivated products, production materials, and equipment with dual-use potential. And then it goes on to list action plan. So it, it leaves this open, okay, because it, it leaves some questions for whoever's taking this course to take on an action plan. And here's the thing, they're not obliged to do so. It's not going to benefit their company in any way to do so. And they really have no reason to do so because they don't have any liability for crying out loud. They're, they have no incentive to do this. So uh, with that being said, I think the bottom line we could gather from this is, first of all, the vaccine manufacturers, this is dual-use research, and it's dual-use research of concern. This is something intelligence communities and military-industrial complex agencies look at seriously as a, a risk for national security, first of all. And secondly, it, they have no liability. Like th That's the whole point. They, they have no incentive to put any of these security measures in place to protect their production. It's just ridiculous. Uh, you, you could look at this and then realize that one of the important takeaways from this is the way that it talks about the major difference between what would be considered a vaccine and a bioterror agent, and that would be the inactivation phase. Now, when you look at some of what's out there right now, there's no inactivation phase. 
the bottom line, folks, this is a eugenics weapon. Be careful out there. Don't don't fall for it. Don't buy into it. They're not going to put things back to normal just because you take their genetic therapy, their experimental gene therapy. That's the thing. They're, they're still telling you, uh, you know, we may need to wear masks every year. It's not going back to normal. That's not in the works. It's not in the plan. Uh, it's not in the World Economic Forum's uh, plans for us, the Great Reset. There's a reason they're doing all of this, and it has zero to do with your health. They don't give a crap about your health. I just proved it right there. I also just essentially proved that this thing is a bioterror agent. I, I, I mean, by their own definition here in this paper. And this is uh, from the Sandia National Labs. It, it's admitted by, by their own definition this could be classified as such. Be careful what you do out there. You've got the, the, the public so brainwashed into going along with this whole kind of agenda here, this whole play. They're just lining up and getting these shots because, well, you know, you, you listen to some of them when they're interviewed. Oh, I just wanted to travel and, you know, I want to want to go back to normal. I want to go see the, the sports games. I want to go to the concerts. They're capitulating to this nonsense. They're, that's the thing. This ends when we say that's enough. We're not listening to you anymore, and we're going on with life. It's no different now than it's ever been. Honestly, the only difference is people, by and large, are listening to their television sets. What, what some stranger on TV tells them. Rather than using their own logic and you know common sense and thinking skills, critical thinking skills, rather than using that, they're just listening to a stranger on the TV and waiting for the stranger on TV to tell them it's okay to go back to living your life like normal. It needs to be understood that any of these things that are rolled out for public consumption in the commercial marketplace or public sector, what you need to understand is all these things were already put their, through their paces 30 years ago within the auspices of the military-industrial complex. They've weaponized and found every use for these things 30 years ago with these technologies. They're far older than what they tell us. They've run them through their paces in these black budget programs and these special access programs before they bring them forward. So they've used many of these gene therapies and these different systems before. Uh, they found every possible way to weaponize them, and they found ways to use them for civilian purposes. So now they're rolling them out because they've perfected them. So whenever you see the latest technology or this latest thing come out that you think is a brand new technology or a brand new development, rest assured it's at least 30 years old. And they've mastered every way to weaponize it that there is. So keep that in mind when you see this stuff. And then you have to question, well, what's the real agenda behind it? But anyway... Thanks for uh, hanging out with me tonight, folks. I hope this was informative for you, and uh, have a good night. Come with me.
See you.